Welcome to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department. This podcast is hosted entirely by the graduate and undergraduate students at The Ohio State University's Anthropology Department through the Anthropology Public Outreach Program, or APOP for short, and in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. In this series, we are continuing our one-on-one interviews with anthropologists from different subfields within our department, and today's guest here with me is Dr. Chris Gremion, an archaeologist. So welcome, Dr. Gremion. Hello, Emma. So the first question that I like to ask my guests is to define anthropology in your own words. Well, I would probably say that it is the comprehensive study of the human species, present and past. Present and past, because you specifically look at the past mostly. That is the bulk of my research is on (laughs) past human societies, yeah. So speaking of the past, can you give us some background into your origin into the field of anthropology and archaeology? Yeah, I can, because I have a very clear memory of (laughs) of the point at which I decided to dedicate myself to anthropology. So I started out interested in history, English, literature, that was really uh, even visual arts, that was was my orientation. Uh, And then in college, I was at Vassar, I took my first anthropology class, and it was a general anthropology Mm -hmm. class, so we had everything from... Back in those days, so this is like circa 1977, maybe. Okay. Uh, (laughs) At that time, you know, kinship terminology and all of that was part of the class, as well as archaeology and and, uh, prehistory, ancient hominids, which at the time we had maybe two or three. Uh, Yeah. Times have changed, right? (laughs) So it really was broad enough to show me what the discipline had to offer as a whole. And I've never really deviated from that belief that one of the great strengths of the field is its comprehensive nature and its broad nature. So to me, anthropology is the discipline that studies all aspects of being human. From a scientific perspective, some anthropologists work more from a humanistic perspective mm-hmm. and interpretive, but whichever way you look at it, it's looking at all aspects of being human, biological, cultural, present, past, even future for that matter. So um, I was immediately struck by how appealing that was, having come from subjects that I really liked and enjoyed very much. But I think anthropology added something. Maybe it was the social science element, I think, because one of my dissatisfactions with writing essays about literature, you know, is that I would eventually get bored, you know, what is really the value of this? And how do I know that what I'm saying is correct or true or worth saying? And seeing that it could be approached as a, in a scientific way was really, really drew me in that direction. So I think that was the missing piece that I really loved literature and history, but I missed the investigation that science brings. Not that historians don't investigate, but the scientific uh, approach really appealed to me. So it seemed like it had everything, yeah. and I never looked back. And then ha- you are an ethnobotanist, right? I am. I would say a paleoethnobotanist because I don't work with living people, but with the remains. That's true. So can you um, explain what a paleoethnobotanist is for our listeners? And then also, how did you get into paleoethnobotany specifically from that broad field of anthropology? That's that's interesting, too. Uh, Paleoethnobotany is the study of the interactions between humans and plants in the past. And it's usually pursued by studying material remains that people left behind seeds, nutshells, even wood, 
we can use to examine the ancient environment, find out what kind of trees were growing. So it's focused on the material remains. And um, that's it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of fell into archaeology almost by accident. It was because of a personal connection to somebody who was an archaeologist. Mm -hmm. And previous to that, I had had no interest whatsoever. (laughs) Having exposure to archaeology combined with a a longstanding interest in natural history and plants, which I had had for a long time, and Mm -hmm. I realized you could combine the two. Yep. And then the light bulb went off, and I said, this is what I want to do now. And I began to pursue that through graduate school. And can you tell us about the nature of your work? So what are the research questions that you're asking? Well, the research questions that I'm most interested in, first of all, the origins and development of agricultural Mm -hmm. systems. So I'm very interested in plant domestication, the evolutionary processes that tie people and plants together, how those relationships develop over time, and how we can track that through the archaeological record. And you do most of your work here in Ohio and Kentucky and... Right. My my field work was done in eastern Kentucky, and the reason for that is that it's a region that's full of caves and rock shelters that have unusual conditions in them that that preserve organic remains Mm -hmm. in a way that we don't normally see. So they're very special resources. So uh, that was my interest uh, when I... My dissertation was about something rather different. But when I came here, I I had developed some contacts in eastern Kentucky, people who who could help me set up research. So I began investigating some of the sites that had either not been looked at or had not been excavated using modern methods. Yeah. So... And some of what you found uh, and used for your analysis, correct me if I'm wrong, is coprolites. Uh, Yes, coprolites. (laughs) Technically, coprolites are fossilized feces, and the term that has been developed to describe these are really subfossils. So we call them paleofeces. Okay. Some people don't like to say the word feces, but. Yeah. Hey, this is science. We can say whatever we want. We can say whatever we want. Uh, yeah. No, but that's really more accurate because they're de- actually desiccated. Okay. They're not turned to stone. So they're, you're they're just dried out and preserved. Yeah. So you're able to. So for our listeners, paleofeces is exactly what it sounds like, right? It's mm-hmm. old poop. It's old poop. It's uh, usually preserved. The sites that I work at. It's preserved by extreme dryness and protection from the elements. There are also some chemicals in the sediments in those sites that I think inhibit decay. And you're able to rehydrate them. (laughs) We can rehydrate them, uh, which is what we do in the lab. um, And you can actually pick out and identify the remnants. So the parts of plants and other things that pass through the digestive tract, but did not get absorbed, yeah. come out. And the thing that I love about that personally is it <clears throat> means that you're looking at what an individual has yes. eaten within each set. So a lot of times right. in the record, you're looking at the the botanical remains and it's, okay, well, this is what the group ate. But when you're looking at the mm-hmm. paleofeces, you get this is what a person ate. Right. So, yes, when you look at one of those specimens, it could uh, represent Maybe up to a few days, but it's a, it's a single individual. Yeah. So you can look at the associations between foods. Uh, you can sometimes determine seasonality uh, and get some idea of the variation between individuals yeah. in their diet. And what are the sorts of foods that we're seeing in this time period, which is in archaic? How many thousands of years ago? Late archaic period. Well, uh, the area where I work 
Three to four thousand years okay. is when you begin to see domesticated plants. Mm-hmm. It is plants that we can actually look at and see morphological change that indicates they were under human influence. Yeah. What That's, foods are we finding the remains of? The seeds and fruits of these ancient domesticates, which include things like the sunflower, mm-hmm. which everyone knows. Uh, other plants that are not well known to the public because after uh, European contact, they were no longer used as domesticates. And so they've kind of receded back into their weedy niche. Other things we find um, in the eastern woodlands of the U.S., important foods, plant foods were uh, nuts of different kinds, hickory nuts, acorns, walnuts. So those were a major food source before agriculture and actually continued to be important after that. We also see an assortment of fleshy fruits, Mm -hmm things that we we call colloquially just fruit, (laughs) things that are usually sweet, you know, berries and other things that are familiar to us. And then a few few little probably minor foods that were backup foods or famine foods. And and we also find things probably were not used by people, but brought in incidentally. Yeah. And when you're studying these, so we're talking about seeds, which are tiny. They can be very tiny, yes. So how, when you're when you're doing the actual excavations, how are you keeping an eye out for these seeds? What do you have to do post-excavation in order to bring them out? You do need to do some something special because, of mm-hmm. course, it's very hard to see these things in the sediments when you're excavating. So most of the time, there's a technique called flotation that's mm-hmm. used that allows the charcoal to float off and other light organic remains, whereas the heavy stuff sinks to the bottom. Rock shelters are a little bit different. There are some constraints. Um, For example, in some cases, you have to really backpack everything in and out, so they may be rather inaccessible. So uh, we can't really bring back large samples of sediment. We don't really have a place there where we can do that on site. Also, the material is desiccated, Mm -hmm. so I'm reluctant to put them in water if I can avoid it. I've been told by some people it doesn't really hurt anything, but I prefer not to. So we do what I have done in the past is, is kind of dry screening. The sediments there are very, very sandy, so it goes right through a screen. So you can extract the small things without doing violence to the things you're interested in. So that's usually how we do it. But that you need sense. a fine screen. Yep. Mm-hmm. So not the quarter inch that we use most of not the time. Not the quarter inch. No, quarter <laughs> inch is not going to help much. Yeah. Even even window screens. So if you want to yeah. capture the, the, the tiniest okay. seeds like tobacco, yeah. you should be looking at 0.4 millimeter it's mesh. <laughs> it's very tiny. Yeah. So of course, with something like sand. It's going to go through. Well, sand is going to uh, uh, yeah, it's big enough. So the finer sediment's going to go through the fine screen, yeah. but something like sand is so big, it's going to pile up in there. Uh, so you end up doing a lot of separating of stuff. Yeah. Under the microscope, we don't need high magnification for most of what we do. Yeah. So it's binocular microscopes, but we yeah. go to higher magnification to get finer points of structure. And, and so once you've taken all of this and you analyze it, How does this contribute to our understanding of human diversity? With that research in particular, I think it's very important because contemporary Native Americans, for the most part, the knowledge of how to use these plants and take care of them, I believe, has been largely lost, Mm -hmm. with the exception of something like the sunflower. But some of these more obscure plants, they may not be part of written history Mm -hmm. or even oral history. So the only way we can really understand the system is to look at the archaeology. Yeah. And, and these were people 
who were cultivating crops long before maize was introduced. So mm-hmm. they are they represent a different phase in human history. And so I think I feel a sort of a responsibility to speak for those people since no one else can really can really do that. So I think yeah. to highlight diversity, I think it's an important part of Native American history yeah. that is poorly known, but yeah. By this time, it's very, very well documented. So I think it's important to share that widely. And these are things like knotweed and... Knotweed is one. They are things that you would rip out of your garden as weeds. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they include like uh, kenopodium or lamb's quarters, which is you can use as a green Mm -hmm. when it's very young, just as a salad. Uh, But it does produce edible seeds also. But they're, they're plants we would either try to get rid of or just ignore. You walk across campus and you may see examples of some of these plants and yeah. you don't people tend to not even see them. They're right. weeds. They're weeds. But they right. used to be food. They used to be food and they could be in the future too. And I know that there are people who are thinking about that. You know, these crops are for the most part they're they're pretty nutritious. Yeah. They're not hard to harvest. They're weeds so they don't need a lot of elaborate care. Yeah. So it may be something to help us with food yeah. Insecurity in the, in the future if we can revive some of these ancient plants. Yeah. And that's what I love about archaeology is it has implications for not just the past, but also going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming to, to talk with us today, Dr. Gramion. You're very welcome. Uh, and for our listeners, thank you again for joining us. And so in the meantime, while you're waiting for our next podcast, subscribe to the podcast and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU. Or check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu. And leave us a review of the show on iTunes. Remember, the more reviewers we have, the easier it is for people to find the show and fall in love with it just like you did. And as always, this podcast is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. We hope you can join us next time as we continue to explore a story of us, our humanity, history, and department. (laughs) ¶¶